Good morning. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Mainly we're going to be there. Um, if you're a guest with us, there's an outline also in the back of your bulletin. You can follow along. Today we're going to close our study of the faith of Abraham. But I can't talk about Abraham without talking about covenant. And this lesson today about covenant is a challenge for me because there is so much to say and only so much time. And so what I want to do in our lesson today is really just make some observations, kind of put some spotlight on some things that I think you've read through, you've heard of, but I'm not sure any of us have really dug deep enough into this because there's so much to learn and appreciate about covenant. Genesis chapter 17. I put it on the top of your study guide. Covenant is an overriding theme throughout Scripture, and that is true. You see at the very beginning, all the way to the end, 298 times do we read that word in our Bibles, covenant. Now, the fundamental difference between a covenant and other agreements is really, in one word, relationship. Now, each party of a covenant makes a specific promise, and they expect certain benefits. Or if you don't keep your promise, then certain um, uh, uh, penalties that would come from that. But the relationship is more than just a legal contract. At its core, it's a relationship. And it's also good for us to know just right off the bat, the concept of a covenant is known beyond just the Bible. There are ancient texts that also reveal that idea of covenant very common in the Near East between government and those being governed. A king would make a covenant with his subjects. He would want the people to be loyal to him, and then he would promise to protect them, and they would make a covenant. A covenant. So a covenant can be between two people, like an alliance or a treaty, and you read about that in Scripture. A covenant can be between a man and a wife. You've often heard the phrase, a covenant of marriage. And of course, the covenant can be between God and man, a divine constitution. But again, the word covenant appears 298 times in the Bible. So notice a few things with me. First, sometimes you'll read the phrase in Scripture, establish a covenant. That wording is just straight out of Scripture. God used that wording with Noah when God saw the wickedness of mankind was great. You remember the story? He regretted. God regretted making mankind because they were so evil it grieved him. And as he planned to do away with mankind, the Bible says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God told Noah the plan, and then in Genesis 6, verse 18, he told Noah this, but I will establish, and there's the word, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then chapter 6 ends that Noah did all that God commanded him. You remember what happened next? The, rud, the, fl- the, rud, the rains came, the, the, the floods rose, and all the people died. All was destroyed. And when the water subsided and Noah and his family disembarked, Noah's first reaction, do you remember, was to worship God. They burned sacrifices. The Bible says it was a, a sweet aroma, a pleasing aroma to God. And so chapter 9 begins saying, God blessed Noah and his sons. Now notice, I want to read this, Genesis 9, verse 8 through 11, and note the covenant language here. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. 
And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that I never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And this section closes in verse 17, where God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Now, you might have noticed also kind of that wording, the sign of the covenant. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So sometimes you'll read in Scripture the phrase, establish a covenant. And Noah is a great example of that. But you'll also read in Scripture the phrase, made a covenant. But you're going to read this more in Scripture. And the Hebrew language is actually not made a covenant. Actually, it's cut a covenant. And there's a reason why that word is used. Some of you may recall the teaching of Ray Vanderlaan a couple of summers back. Uh, Daryl Trimble just did another series for that. And Daryl, we appreciate you doing that in August. Because uh, Ray Vanderlaan has a video series that the world may know. And, and his expertise is that he is able to help us understand uh, the background of, of what we read in Scripture. The culture, what was going on, some of the archaeology in it, it shed such a light to help you understand what's going on in Scripture. And there was a, a, a lesson he taught, I think, last year or year before, and he talked about these two parties, and he shared a, a, a visual, and I was thinking about that as I was studying this. And look on the screen. You might remember this image, uh, not the one he used, but very similar to it. There would be a slaying of the animals. And they would place them, cut them in half, and place either side on a sloping terrain, as this illustration kind of shares. And then with the covenant, the king or the dominant party would walk through the center, through the blood, kind of in essence by his actions saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my part. So it's a very significant gesture because the covenant was to be remembered the covenant was to be honored. And so this was a common practice in that day. So with that in mind, now look in Genesis chapter 15, and then notice God's interaction with Abraham. Now, we covered the first few verses of this a couple of weeks ago. But look at your Bibles, Genesis 15. It's on the screen as well, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham believes God, but he's not bashful. So he asks God, tells God kind of what he's thinking. Verse 3, Abraham, Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. Now, Abraham believes God. The Bible tells us that. But he also wants some proof. How can I know? Verse 8. Oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
And notice God's instructions to Abraham. He said to him, verse 9, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, notice how the text reads. Abraham was told to get the animals, but he wasn't told what to do with them. But Abraham knows what to do with them. It was common in that culture. God said, you get these animals. Abraham went to work. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, notice this, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, now, the verses that follow, God's going to tell him, I've got your back. I'm with you. And then look at verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And then our Bibles read, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made, cut a covenant with Abram. That had to be a momentous occasion for Abraham. But as you recall, very next chapter, Abraham and Sarah become impatient in the waiting, take matters into their own hands to circumvent God's plan. But I want to turn our attention to Genesis chapter 17. In our study of Abraham, we've not mentioned this chapter, and this is a key chapter. So look on the screen or turn your Bible there, and I want you to notice the term covenant appears 13 times in this chapter alone. There is so much more for us to learn. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. So God is uh, revealing to Abraham one of his names, El Shaddai, God Almighty. He has all the power. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So then now, notice this. Notice with Abraham, this covenant brought about a name change. You remember this about the detail. Verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. It's God Almighty, El Shaddai, will make him very fruitful, make him into nations. Even kings will come from him. And we know the rest of the story. God kept his word. There was multitude of nations. Kings did come from him. Even the king of kings came through Abraham's family. Now, in Abraham's culture, and still in other cultures today, more so than ours, a name had significance. A name had power. Now, parents today may spend a lot of time thinking about a name, but not like other cultures do. When a name was given, especially when a name was changed, it was to, to share their destiny, to talk about their future, to reveal their character. So God Almighty changes his name from Abram to Abraham. 
Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. One looks to the past, the other looks to the future. One reflects that the old has passed away, the other reflects that a new has come. But God would not only reflect the change of character and destiny for Abraham, he would do the same for Sarah as well. Look at verse 15. God said to Abraham, and as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Her name means princess. Some of you might recall me from time to time talking about my missionary friend, Jayapal. Jayapal, Jaya is an Indian name. Paul, not so much. If it was Jaya Patel, you'd go, yep, that's an Indian name. But Jaya Paul, while not uncommon, that's not a common Indian name, but his parents were told the gospel. They decided to follow Jesus. And when Jaya Paul was born, they named him after the apostle Paul. Because in that culture, a name was to reflect your destiny, your future, your character. And so that's why they called their little one Jaya Paul. Here is something else to consider about the name change in Genesis 17. Some scholars believe that the change in Abram's name and Sarah's name to Abraham and Sarah occurred because God took part of his name, Yahweh, and put that into their name. Look at the screen. That same part of the name, part of him was in them, part of this union, part of this covenant, part of this relationship together. Even today, think about the parallel we have in our new covenant with Jesus. We have a new identity, a new destiny, a new future, even a new name. No longer are we fearful, anxious, sinner, guilty, rebel, condemned. In Jesus Christ, we're saved, redeemed, adopted, forgiven, child of God, heir of eternal life. And under that new covenant of Jesus Christ, think about this. You've got a part of God living in you. It's the same God, same way he relates with people. Jesus spoke of this, John 14, 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In John 15, 4, he says, abide in me, and I in you. Well, next on your outline, words of the covenant. We read that phrase because that's the way it appears in Bible, but, but I want you to think about copies. That's really what is going on here. Think of copies of the covenant. Look at Exodus 31, verse 18. God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now, we're familiar with this story. And, and like me, you're thinking of Charlton Heston. You've got the visual there, right? I mean, it's just, it's just there. And because of that, more than likely, you think of those two tablets, you've got the Ten Commandments, one through five on one, and six through ten on the other, right? That's kind of how the way we envision it. Not likely the way it happened. In fact, the very next chapter in Exodus, it tells that they were written on the front and the back. 
But the phrase words of the covenant is used in Exodus 34, verse 28. Look at this. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So one scholar was explaining in that culture, it was common practice then when you made a covenant where a king and those governed or maybe friends in an alliance, that each would have a copy. And in this tablet, kind of a, a, a synopsis. This is the basic part of it. In short, it could be easily read and stored. It kind of summarized the entire covenant. And it represented that relationship between the two parties. So normally then, two copies were made. Now, that makes sense. Even today, you, you know, you get an agreement with somebody. You say, you get a copy, I get a copy. But why did Moses then have two copies? Was that God's saying to people? Because you would take that copy and you would put it in your most sacred place. And for God and for the people, the most sacred place was in the Ark of the Covenant, remember? In the Holy of Holies that represented the presence of God. Here's something else to take note of. There was typically a covenant meal. You'll read that in Scripture as well. In Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban ate together when they made a covenant. Exodus 24, God invited Moses, Aaron, and the elders of Israel up to eat and drink. Remember Paul and others calling Jesus the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And it was at the Passover meal where Jesus himself, before he gave his life, he used that same covenant language. Look at Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. Jesus took the bread when he given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Notice how Matthew shares what Jesus said. Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. When he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the covenant meal is important, even to this day. So let's talk about signs of the covenant. I mentioned that earlier, talking about Noah and that covenant, the rainbow. We think of that even today. We remember that promise, that covenant that God made with all of creation, never to destroy the earth by flood again. When Daryl was doing the class back in August, walking with God in the desert, you might remember if you were part of that class, there was one night where Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech, and he planted a tree. And we we're talking about the shades and all that, the tamarisk tree. That planting a tree was a part of the covenant. Ray Vandalon mentioned a sign of the covenant. Planting a tree could be one. Obviously, a rainbow could be one. Sometimes a stone could be one. Or a, a pile of stones would be a similar kind of sign. In Genesis 31, again, Jacob and Laban made a covenant, and a stone was erected as a pillar. In fact, they made a heap of stones, and the Bible says they ate there by the heap. So again, they had that both the sign, the stones, and that covenant meal kind of to seal the covenant together. Exodus 24, again, God invited Moses, Aaron, and the others up to worship. And there they erected the 12 pillars in addition to eating together. 
They had this stone memory. Remember this moment. Let's keep this in mind. Now, let's go back to Genesis 17 and notice the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, what we know, though, is unfortunately the generations that followed Abraham would see that physical act as a means of salvation instead of a revealing that they had given their heart to the Lord and entered into this covenant with him. And here's the reality. The sign is not the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant, but it is not the covenant. The outward ritual means nothing if it doesn't represent what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're promising, that you're going to keep your part of the covenant. And there are several passages in the Old Testament that talk about this. Deuteronomy 10, 12, same kind of wording here. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's not just about doing the act. It's a heart issue. Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and you may live. The circumcision was supposed to be a sign of the heart, a reflection of that relationship, a reflection of that covenant. That was the sign of the covenant. So the question comes up often when we talk about this, does physical circumcision have any kind of uh, uh, application for Christians today? Or under the new covenant, physical circumcision has no significance to the believer. What really matters, really, in a word, is spiritual circumcision, if you will. It's done not by a knife, but by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to cut us, mold us into his image. And that really symbol, think about in the new covenant, you're probably already ahead of me, is baptism. Baptism is sort of a similar, a similar, a parallel under the new covenant. But even baptism, think about it, is more than just getting wet. Anybody can be submerged. Anybody can be dumped. It's not just the physical act. It's what's going on in the heart. And that's why you're baptized. The baptism is not the saving. It's reflecting of a faith that is the saving. It all works together. And think about the symbolism of baptism. It's so rich that once died to self and sin, he now lives for Jesus. He was baptized, submerged, buried, just as Jesus was. And he comes back up and he's resurrected. It's a new life in Christ. You take on the robe of Jesus' righteousness. The Bible talks about that, being clothed with Christ. Didn't mention this with Jonathan, David. They made a covenant. And Jonathan gave David his robe Man, I've got you. I'm covering you. And we know the rest of that story. He did. He died for David. And the new heart that comes from that relationship with God's people. That's how you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's talk about the new covenant then. Jesus is the one who used that phrase, new covenant. It's found often in the New Testament. 
The writer of Hebrews uses it repeatedly. I want to share that with you. There's one time where he's quoting Jeremiah. If you might remember, Jeremiah was a prophet toward the end, about 500 years before Jesus came back. And Israel had just, the people of God had totally abandoned God at this point. So Hebrews 8, verse 8, the writer says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then verse 13, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. You keep reading in chapter 9, he talks about how in the first covenant, there are all these regulations for worship, the tent, the most holy place, the holy place. And he mentions how when Christ comes, he's the greater tent, how Jesus is the sacrifice, that his blood was shed, and that now the Hebrew writer makes the point, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 12 and following. When Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made his footstool for his feet. For a single offering he had perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this, <clears throat> for after saying, and now he's quoting Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the new covenant. Let me close with this. A covenant, in essence, is a call to obedience. Keep your word. You keep your part of the, of the deal. Look at Genesis 17, verses 22 and following. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had commanded him. We learn here, Abraham obeying the command, the Lord gave him back in verse 9. And really a throwback all the way to verse 1 where he says, Walk before me and be blameless. Abraham's response to God reveals he's a faithful partner in this covenant, in this relationship of the blood. It was a covenant of grace, but the appropriate response was to keep your word, keep your part, to obey what the Lord had asked of him. And that's what he does. And so even today, those of us in a covenant relationship with God have the responsibility to obey. One person said it this way, we signify our covenant relationship with the Lord through obedience. How many of you have heard of Matthew Henry? Heard of Matthew Henry? Have you got a copy of Matthew Henry's uh, commentary in your shelves? Matthew Henry lived in the 16, 1700s, kind of a staple, you know. Uh, a lot of people know Matthew Henry. How many of you know Philip Henry? Philip was his dad. And evidently, Matthew's dad, Philip, made quite an impression on the young man to help his children. And I, as I read this, I thought every parent has been through this. When your child comes to faith and you wonder, are they old enough? Do they understand enough? And you talk them through that and you study through that. You wonder, how can I help them to make sure that, that they understand? They're doing it for the right reasons. He did the same thing. So he wrote some words out, said, this is what it means 
This is what you were doing when you were baptized. This was his statement. I take God to be my chief end and highest good. I take God the Son to be my prince and my savior. I take God the Holy Spirit to be my sanctifier, teacher, guide, and comfort. I take the word of God to be my rule in all my actions and the people of God to be my people under all conditions. I do hereby dedicate and devote to the Lord all that I am and all that I have and all that I can do. And I do this deliberately, freely, and forever. Those are covenant words. You're entering into a relationship. You're pledging your life. You're saying, God, I am yours from this day forward. You have a God who created you in his own image. A God who gave you a soul. A God who gave you the freedom to make your own choices. Even knowing that you had turned your back on him. So he made a plan. He came to earth so that he could maintain, restore that relationship with you. God sacrificed his own son. A God who promised the Holy Spirit. So a part of him can be in covenant with you. Live in you. So the question is the same. It's always been the same. Just like Abraham, do you believe? Do you believe? Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. And just like Abraham then, will you obey and do what God ask you to do. For Abraham, it was circumcision. For us, it's baptism. For you, it's your moment of saying, God, I am yours. And then every week, you gather with others who've made that same covenant with God, and you eat of that body, and you drink of that blood, blood of the covenant, because you remember that it was cut for you. More than anything, God just wants you. And so the question is, do you believe? And your actions reveal what's in your heart. Our invitation is to encourage you to believe, to make that confession, to obey in baptism if you've not yet done that, and then live every day in that covenant knowing that he's in you and you're in him. And you look forward to the day that he calls you home. If you need Jesus in any way, if we can pray for you, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?